welcome to episode 9 of the best air and space power podcast around. Today though, we're actually taking a much closer look at the UK's nuclear policy. This is because in 2021, the Integrated Review, which is a really important publication that sets the UK's strategic direction for the next 5 to 10 years or so, announced that the UK was going to actually raise its cap on the number of warheads that it maintains. Now, since the end of the Cold War, the UK has been committed to actually reducing its number of nuclear weapons to make the world a safer place and reduce the likelihood of nuclear war. And I think we can all agree that's a fairly important objective. However, the Integrated Review abandoned a former cap of 225 warheads, as well as the expectation that the UK would eventually reduce its nuclear stockpile to 180 by the mid-2020s. Instead, the cap was raised to 260 warheads. This reverses over two decades of post-Cold War nuclear reductions and was, as you can probably imagine, quite a controversial decision when it was announced. Many people questioned whether more nuclear warheads actually equates to more deterrence. Others also feared that this would not only set back support for nuclear disarmament, but it would also trigger a nuclear arms race between the major powers. So today, Claire is asking what this decision tells us about who the UK sees as its main adversary and what type of conflict the UK expects to be involved in. But then there is also the scarier question. Is nuclear war becoming more likely? I mean, that's what the UK claims is happening and thus why they want to increase the number of warheads in the first place. So it'll be interesting to find out what sort of evidence or what types of trends exist to support this claim. And if nuclear war is becoming more likely, how best can we avoid it? Do more nuclear weapons somehow make nuclear war less likely? That's the question that really needs answering here. Because this is world-ending stuff. It's not just the sheer number of people that can be killed as a direct consequence of detonating a nuclear device. Scientists have warned that only as little as 100 nuclear warheads would be sufficient to pretty much destroy life on planet Earth as we know it so the stakes really couldn't be any higher. Thankfully though, we've got Dr Matthew Harries on the show to answer some of these very significant and pertinent questions. Dr Harries is an expert in nuclear proliferation and policy at the Royal United Services Institute, commonly known as RUSI, and has written widely on these subjects. Before that, Matthew worked for the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, was a senior fellow for transatlantic affairs and nuclear policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and before that taught at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies at Bologna. So he's a pretty useful guy to discuss this subject with. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you very much for joining us today, Matthew. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I thought I'd start at the very start of this matter, really, which is that the UK recently announced that it will increase the cap on its nuclear warheads from 180 to 260, which is an increase of around about 44%. Um, and this was done on the grounds that a nuclear strike has become more likely. So my question is, do international trends support this assessment? Has a nuclear strike become more likely over the past 10 years or so? Thanks, Claire. It's nice to be here. Um, uh, so there's a lot to unpack in that question. Maybe let's start with what actually happened, what the change in policy has been. So in the integrated review last year, which came out in March um, 2021, the UK announced that it was increasing the cap on the warheads that it says it can build, the nuclear warheads it says it can build, 
Um, it wasn't actually an increase of the cap from 180 all the way up to 260. Um, the previous cap was 225. But what the UK had previously said was that it would be reaching, would be going down to a cap of 180 by the mid 2020s. So basically the cap went up um, from 225 to 260, which is a significant increase, but not a huge one. And then at the same time, what that also meant was that UK was abandoning the target of going down further. And in general, what that means is that basically ever since the 1998 um, defence review, the Strategic Defence Review, the UK set itself on a path of progressively lower targets for the number of nuclear weapons that it wanted to have. And um, in the kind of post-Cold War environment, I think the UK saw itself as living in a world where nuclear weapons were becoming gradually less and less relevant and where nuclear weapons would play less of a role in national security and defense strategy. And therefore the UK could, could get away with having fewer and fewer of them. And obviously there was a, there's, there's always been quite a big party political um, aspects to this topic. You know, the Labour Party um, has traditionally been fairly skeptical of the usefulness of nuclear weapons. But on the other hand, um, I think there's a perception, there's been a perception in the leadership of the Labourship Party for a long time that pursuing unilateral disarmament is very politically unpopular. And so the Labour governments in, in under, the, under Blair and Brown were, I think, quite cautious about being seen to be too disarmament leaning. So they kind of pursued a middle path, which was, okay, we support Trident, we're going to renew the submarines and build an, a new generation of, of nuclear weapons. But we're also going to try and move gradually away from, from nuclear deterrence by, by progressively reducing the numbers. And the UK played a constructive role in, in international negotiations um, to, to move towards nuclear disarmament as well. Okay, so that's the kind of backstory. And then we get to this, this integrated review uh, last year. And basically that document sets out um, a broader context of where the world has been moving particularly in the last decade or so um, in terms of nuclear issues. And obviously the integrated review was about the whole of uh, UK strategy, not, not just about nuclear weapons. The document as a whole kind of lays out a world of greater competition between major powers and the international system, kind of a diversifying range of threats that the UK faces, um, shift in power towards the Indo-Pacific, which the UK has to react to, but at the same time, a strong threat from Russia, the entrance of China as a, as a systemic competitor to the UK. And um, within that context, the Integrated Review also talked about the fact that um, uh, what's been happening in the nuclear weapons landscape is pretty grim. Basically, that, that countries unfriendly to the UK have been growing and diversifying their own nuclear arsenals. They've been introducing new types of nuclear weapons, particularly types which are designed for war fighting rather than necessarily just deterrence. And so it kind of painted a, a sort of grim picture of where things have been going. And that was the context for the, for the UK's um, announcement. It's not just the increase in, um, in the cap, uh, it's also um, a sort of a more pessimistic diagnosis of what the world looks like. And there were also, just one last thing, there were also some um, more minor but still important details in what was announced. 
uh, one of which was that the UK is now less transparent about how many um, warheads are going to be deployed on the submarines and how many missiles can be deployed on the submarines. So in theory, it's not just that the UK is reserving the right to build more warheads, it's also that the UK is now reserving the right to put more missiles and more submarine, uh, more warheads on the submarines, whereas previously it had imposed some kind of limits. So basically, at least in theory, the UK can now deploy more nuclear firepower, quite considerably more nuclear firepower, um, than uh, it previously said it would as part of that process of imposing um, gradually lower limits on, on numbers. With one caveat, which is that increasing the cap isn't the same as um, actually building new weapons. So the UK is also not saying what the actual number in the stockpile is. Um, and so while the cap has gone up, we don't actually know where the, the actual numbers are compared to that cap. That's really interesting. I mean, I think even in that answer, you've highlighted that it's not a straightforward strategic decision in terms of dealing with something, you know, a world out there. There's all kinds of factors that affect this decision making process. So I guess the next question might be to ask what benefits does the UK have from increasing the cap? Do more warheads increase the value or the strength of the UK's deterrence? You know, are these strategic benefits or do you think there might be something else at work in this calculation? Yeah, I mean, that's not an easy question to answer because the UK has said some stuff in public about why the cap went up, but um, hasn't provided a completely detailed explanation. What the document says um, about the cap increase is that it's, it was a response to the security environment the UK is facing, and then two specific things, um, technological and doctrinal threats, which is slightly sort of abstract language. Um, but there are some hints that we can we can kind of infer from it. Um, so so yeah, the general security environment is that you know more countries hostile to the UK are increasing their arsenals, diversifying their arsenals, and other countries want to get into the nuclear game um, potentially. But then this um, technological and doctrinal threats bit, um, the technological um, bits that you could speculate are relevant are one um, more capable ballistic missile defense systems on the part of adversaries and probably number one Russia. Uh, Russia has been traditionally the, the sort of pacing threat that determines what nuclear weapons the UK thinks it needs. So if Russian ballistic missile defenses are getting better then it's possible the UK might need um, more warheads or uh, more um, uh, angles of attack um, to defeat those ballistic missile defenses. Um, I mean, China is also working on, on ballistic missile defenses as well of, it, of its own. Um, and then number two is that, uh, as the integrated review points out, Russia is also, for example, working on new types of nuclear weapon system and is putting more emphasis on so-called non-strategic nuclear weapon systems. These are sort of shorter range systems that might be more relevant uh, to, to so-called warfighting. It's not necessarily obvious that just because adversaries are working on those systems and have been increasing their arsenals and the UK deterrent necessarily does need to increase. 
because the basis for UK deterrence has traditionally been the ability to inflict on, on, on an enemy punishment which would deter it from doing something that we don't want them to do. So you don't necessarily have to have more to deter that, right? Even if the, even if the enemy's numbers go up, you might decide that if you have, if you're confident in what you have, then you have the ability to respond. Um, and it doesn't matter what the, what the other side is doing. But this mention of doctrinal threats uh, also gives us a couple of clues because I think what that is likely means is that the UK sees in um, advers adversaries' doctrines, and again, probably Russia as number one here, the idea that a limited use of nuclear weapons might be the threat that um, stops the UK responding to a, 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 a situation, so getting involved in a conventional war, or the limited use of nuclear weapons might be used to stop a conflict on the adversary's terms. And therefore, potentially, we might be able to speculate that a reason for this is that the UK might think it needs more weapons, but more warheads overall, in order to be able to keep some to use a smaller number to respond to limited use and then have the rest uh, in reserve for the broader scale, um, you know, large scale nuclear exchange, strategic nuclear exchange. So those are the kind of, those are the kind of benefits that you could speculate the UK is trying to get from making this change because the um, government doesn't go into more detail than that in public, it's quite hard to be much more specific than that. Um, I do think it is important to emphasize that, you know, increasing the number of weapons doesn't necessarily just mean that your deterrence somehow gets better. I don't think there's a linear relationship between the two. On the other hand, I think there's also, there is kind of a political and message sending aspect to it as well. After several years of emphasizing um, disarmament and reductions in numbers of nuclear weapons, this, review leads much more strongly with the idea of deterrence and pushes the message that the sort of the UK is, is back in the nuclear deterrence game in that sense. So, you know, there's a kind of strategic or even a kind of operational aspect to it, which is, you know, how many, what numbers do you need if you run all your calculations and you work out what targets you have to hit and what defenses there are and so on, you know, what numbers do you need? But more broadly than that, there's also a message sending aspect, which is, um, which is that, uh, uh, you know, the UK is taking deterrence seriously and is responding to what it sees as a kind of negative shifts in the security environment. One other thing to mention, I think, is that um, when the decision was made, there was also a lot of speculation about whether there are more practical reasons why the UK had to do this. So the UK is starting to get ready to build a new nuclear warhead to replace the generation that's currently um, part of the arsenal. And so one of the one of the things that was being speculated about was whether this cap was basically there to allow a bulge in the stockpile when the new warhead is coming in and the old ones being withdrawn. Um, I think I think the, the 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 problem with that as the explanation is that it's not quite clear why you'd have to announce an increase in the cap now because the new warhead, you know, won't be built until the twenty thirties. Um, so. It's not clear why why you have to change the policy now as opposed to wait, uh, waiting. You could also, if it was if 
it was necessary, you could you could say explicitly that it's kind of a temporary bulge and will go back down. Um, there's a the same thing applies to sort of more immediate practical considerations, you know, so that there is a, a, another upgrade um, in the in the warhead, um, which still appears to be happening um, to the so-called Mark, Mark IV-A warhead from Mark IV. And so there's, there was also some speculation about whether, you know, there was something to do with the transition there that required a kind of bulge on, on temporary kind of practical grounds. Again, you know, you could, the government, if, if that was the reason, the government could have um, said so, basically, that, you know, for, 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 that there were practical reasons why the, the cap needed to expand for a bit. So, and obviously they didn't choose to do that. They chose to explicitly change policy and say that it was a response to the security environment itself. So one way or another, there was quite a, a, a deliberate decision to, to, to raise the uh, cap, to reduce the transparency, to basically give the UK the right to, to deploy more um, weapons. Because I think one thing to bear in mind is that the UK doesn't want to have a policy that it would end up breaking. I mean, that's the, actually, you know, when, when these things are written down in, on paper, uh, by and large, the UK is going to want to do exactly what it said and not contravene that policy. So it's about giving yourself the right to do it, even if you're not going to do it uh, immediately. That's actually a really interesting point you make there that, you know, the, the signalling component or the message sending component is almost as important as the policy itself. And of course, they're not just sending messages to adversaries, they're also sending messages to allies and, you know, their own domestic audiences too. But I mean, on that point about allies, how much does the UK rely on its ally, the United States, for its nuclear deterrent? Does I mean, does the UK really have an independent deterrent? So a typical explanation is, the typical line on this is that the UK's deterrent is operationally independent, that the UK can uh, choose when to uh, use its nuclear weapons, and can't be stopped from using its nuclear weapons if it wants to, and can't be made to use its nuclear weapons if it doesn't want to. So it's operationally independent. In technological terms, the UK is highly dependent on the on the United States. Um, so the UK leases um, a set number of missiles from the United States, which it draws from a, a common pool um, of missiles, both the UK buys the right to a certain number of missiles, um, tried missiles from the US. Um, and in that sense, it's, it's entirely dependent on, on the US um, on the missile front. And then on the warhead part, so the UK's line on this is that the UK's warhead is sovereign, that the UK designs its own warheads to go on, on missiles. Um, the Reality is that the UK does work very closely with the US on um, warhead matters as well. There's a close similarity between the UK's current warhead and a, a, an existing US warhead called the W76. The UK has also been very careful to align itself to US plans for the next generation of warheads. So the UK warhead is going to be aligned with a US program called the W93. And so a lot of the important decisions will need to be taken at the same time and the UK and US will work together. So the UK position in general is that it wants to retain the ability to design and produce its own warheads. And that's a sovereign uh, capability that it, it, it maintains for itself. 
um, and that there are um, that the UK complies with its obligations under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, that, that uh, warheads are not simply handed over from the United States to the UK. Um, um, but uh, it's true at the same time that there is a lot of cooperation between the two uh, weapons establishments. And again, you know, certain components are procured from, from the US. So yeah, on the missile side, basically entirely dependent. Um, on the warhead side, more complicated. UK is more sovereign in that area, but it's not entirely um, independent there either. And that's a really interesting uh, element of all of this, which is the sort of diplomatic as well as the technological and political ties that come up or sort of bound up with these matters, with these matters of the UK's nuclear deterrent. It's really interesting. Now, what do you think this increase maybe tells us about who the UK sees as an adversary and, you know, what they think future conflict might look like from my own perspective i mean aren't non-nuclear threats maybe more probable or likely what's your sense on this yeah good question um so there's well number one who's the adversary um in the nuclear realm and in, in the most direct sense russia and you know the conflict in ukraine as we're talking has actually i think raised again the salience of nuclear weapons um Russia has combined you know, conventional invasion with some quite explicit nuclear threats. Um, and on both sides, I think there has been an element of nuclear deterrence. Russia has been using nuclear threats as part of what it's done to, to convince NATO countries not to fight directly um, for Ukraine. On the other hand, um, you know, US, UK, French, NATO nuclear weapons are also part of what deters Russia from trying to stop um, the West supporting Ukraine in other ways through, um, particularly through weapons deliveries and, and, and that kind of thing. So in some senses, nuclear deterrence has been operating on, on both sides. Obviously, Ukraine has been then trapped in the middle of that, in the sense that the, I think the punishment and, and suffering that Ukraine has experienced has probably been added to by the existence of nuclear weapons, because I think were it not for the fear of all-out escalation to nuclear use, I think NATO countries would potentially have been slightly less cautious in what they were willing to do for Ukraine. It's not as simple as just saying it's nuclear weapons that are deterring this. I do think nuclear weapons have been quite prominent in this conflict in a way that they haven't been um, for for several years. But even if I mean, even if you disagree with with the UK's decision to 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 raise the warhead cap, the diagnosis of how things have gone in the last ten years is pretty solid, I think, because as I said, Russia Russia is modernising its um, its nuclear arsenal. It's also added new capabilities to its arsenal. It looks like China will be both increasing its numbers of nuclear weapons and diversifying the kinds that it has and relying more on nuclear weapons than it has done previously as part of its strategy. Um, you know, nuclear tensions in, in, uh, in South Asia uh, are still high and the, the, you know, there's been no progress in, in arms control or confidence building really between India and Pakistan. Tensions on the on the Korean Peninsula got extremely bad during the Trump years, and, and are looking again to be increasing. 
and North Korea's arsenal has been kind of proceeding at pace. They're trying to rescue the Iran nuclear deal at the minute, but that's also looking wobbly. You know, in general, um, that nuclear landscape has been has been pretty poor um, over the last 10 years and has not been going in, in the direction that we hope. So in that sense, I actually think the diagnosis is pretty solid that um, nuclear weapons are more at the forefront of, of world affairs than, than they were 10 years ago. On the other hand, your question is a good one because in terms of use uh, and in terms of where innovation is happening, obviously conventional conflicts are are the main concern in that sense and the, the sort of pace of technological change as well in, in advanced conventional capabilities is, is, is rapid. Um, and that is important. It's interesting actually that the integrated review also did hint at that development too. Firstly, if you look at the rest of the document, there's a very, very high emphasis on advanced conventional capabilities that need to invest in R&D um, and to keep up with those trends. So the rest of the document actually emphasizes that quite strongly. In the nuclear bit, there was an interesting detail, which is that the U so the UK promises in general not to threaten countries that don't have nuclear weapons uh, with uh, its own uh, nuclear weapons. So the, the, the countries that aren't nuclear armed are generally exempt from the idea that the UK would ever use nuclear weapons against them. The exception to that is countries that don't comply with their non-proliferation obligations. So basically, if there's, if there's a doubt about you know, a country that is, is sort of formally not regarded as nuclear armed, but actually in practice, um, you know, there's suspicion about whether they might be using nuclear weapons, there's, there's a carve out there. But there's also a car, there's also an extra caveat, which is that UK um, says that it it um, it re reserves the right to re review that assurance in the light of future trends. And one of those trends, which was new in this in this document, hadn't appeared before, was developments in emerging technologies. That might suggest then that the UK is willing to employ a nuclear response to something like a major cyber attack, for example. Is that a fair assumption to make? Um, so I don't think that's exactly the message that was meant to be sent. I think the message that was meant to be sent was that in the future, certain non-nuclear, sort of advanced non-nuclear capabilities, particularly used in combination, might have um, the same, potentially have the same impacts that we associate with, a, uh, uh, with the use of nuclear weapons. I think there is some thinking going on about non-nuclear threats and and what it means for nuclear deterrence but there's a there's also then the, the the other aspect of this which is even if you think the nuclear landscape is getting worse even if you think you might be facing more nuclear threats in future does an increase in your nuclear arsenal actually help uh, tackle those threats so for example on the question of limited nuclear use how far down the road of responding to that, does the UK want to go? You know, is it really is it realistic to think that you would um, engage in sort of a lot of limited nuclear use or, or several rounds of so-called limited nuclear use? Um, and do you need a lot of capability to do that? And I think there are there are some some kind of important arguments to be had about you know. Even if we think we're facing an adversary that might threaten to use a small number of nuclear weapons as a way of ending a conflict, do you really want to match that threat? Do you really want to get drawn into the idea that you would then um, kind of 
lob a few <laughs> nuclear weapons here and there um, in, in a so-called limited exchange? Or are there you know, other better ways of responding to that? Yeah, I mean, the sort of, we haven't really talked about it, and it might not be possible here, but, you know, there's the sort of moral and ethical and diplomatic uh, elements here of, you know, do we want to commit to making those kinds of moves in the future? Is that going to put us in good stead for the future? So maybe that links quite nicely to your discussion about the uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaty. I mean, how important has that treaty been to global stability? And do you think that the UK's decision to increase the cap could potentially go against this treaty? You know, we've we've talked about the benefits of of this increase, but what do you think might be the costs? So there definitely there are absolutely diplomatic costs, and I and I'm I'm sure the that UK officials were absolutely conscious of that when making the decision, and they were priced into that decision. Um, the I mean, for anybody who already doesn't doesn't already know what the NPC is, and the non proliferation the non proliferation treaty is the treaty that it was negotiated in the 60s and came into force in 1970, and it basically drew a line and said, okay, the existing five nuclear weapon states, which were then the US, USSR, the UK, China, and France, uh, those are the existing nuclear weapon states. Uh, the signatories to this treaty say that they will, other countries will not build nuclear weapons and will not be helped to build uh, nuclear weapons. Um, the five that already have nuclear weapons will, will um, do their best to pursue negotiations to get rid of them. And all countries will get access to the benefits of civilian nuclear energy. So that was the basic deal. Um, the treaty has been very important in setting the, the diplomatic and legal framework for efforts to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. It's not the only thing that does stop the spread. There have been many other important things. One of them is that uh, countries like NATO members are under the US nuclear umbrella, so that in a way substituted for, for them feeling that they needed their own nuclear weapons, instead they have a guarantee from the US. Then there have been technological, I mean, um, there have been sort of more practical um, export controls and things and, and persuasive measures to stop countries uh, doing it, you know, sanctions, export controls, bilateral diplomacy to persuade them not to. You know, the US has, has had to put pressure on its allies sometimes not to pursue nuclear weapons. But the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, is the framework that contains all the basis for all those efforts. And, and basically, it sets the norm that nuclear proliferation is not okay. It um, lends, it gives the International Atomic Energy Agency um, a specific role in um, uh, monitoring compliance with the treaty. And it is, it's commonly talked about as the cornerstone of the international non-proliferation regime. So yeah, it's been very important in stopping the spread of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons have, beyond those, those five, there are only four other countries that have acquired, uh, that have nuclear weapons today. And without it, I think, you know, we would be in a much more um, uncertain and unstable world. The problem with the NPT, obviously, is that the deal at heart isn't fair. Um, you know, it's not fair that some countries have nuclear weapons and some have given up the option to build them. And when countries signed the treaty, they did so partly accepting that unfairness because they thought that a world with lots of nuclear weapon states would be more dangerous. And that's still true today. That hasn't changed. But 
there was also in the treaty this commitment that the countries with nuclear weapons would pursue negotiations in good faith towards disarmament. And um, there has been a lot of progress on disarmament in the sense that we are a long way away from the tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in the world that there were in the mid-1980s. And those numbers have come down dramatically. But at the same time, um, we are still a long way away from, from zero. And now it, it, actually the numbers have started to tick back upwards you know, in the wrong direction in that sense. So there's a lot of frustration on the part of countries without nuclear weapons that the five nuclear weapon states, uh, parties to the treaty are going in the opposite direction and, and from their point of view, haven't fulfilled their disarmament obligations. And in that context, the UK putting its warhead cap up is obviously something that um, is very unpopular in, in, in that conversation. And in particular, basically breaks the UK's reputation that it had, had put quite a lot of effort into in the last 20 years as the most forward-leaning, progressive nuclear weapon state that was interested in disarmament and arms control. But all that said, and you know, I've been critical of the UK's decision in that respect because of the diplomatic impact. All that said, I mean, it, the UK's changes to its own posture are pretty minor on the scale of things in that, you know, the UK is not building a new class of nuclear weapons. It's not fundamentally changing the type of um, arsenal, the type of posture it has. It's kind of more of a marginal change around the edges compared to China building hundreds of new um, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile silos, um, compared to Russia introducing um, sort of genuinely new uh, types of nuclear weapons um, compared to uh, um, you know uh, countries that are using more explicit nuclear threats uh, you know, compared to Russia's behavior um, around the war in Ukraine and making nuclear weapons kind of an explicit part of the conflict you know the UK what the UK has done is is not the main thing that is going to make the conversation at the NPT review conference difficult. In a way, it's sort of more a symptom of the times than it is a, a driver of of diplomatic fallout. Um, but yeah, no, there are. I think there are obvious diplomatic costs to what the UK did in that sense. But as I say, I'm sure that that was, you know, made very clear in the decision making, and um, the government decided to do it anyway. I mean, that's a really a, a salutary lesson to end on, which is that what the UK does is important, but it's only as strong as the sort of international agreements and the diplomatic ties and the, the sort of political structure in which it's operating. Thank you very much. That was a really interesting discussion and a lot of food for thought. Thanks a lot, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Some excellent analysis there from Dr. Matthew Harries. Nuclear weapons are always a divisive issue because of the huge costs of maintaining such an arsenal, as well as the ethical issues surrounding weapons of mass destruction. But I thought that was a really measured and useful discussion of the UK's current nuclear policy. And what the integrated review means for British security and defence as a whole. So thanks to Dr Harries for coming on the show. Next up we have Professor Pete Lee talking to us about artificial intelligence and autonomous weapon systems. 
and in particular, whether the use of such weapons can ever be ethical or not. So tune in next time to hopefully hear more about the development of Terminators. See you then.